Hello? Hey, can you hear me? Hey, Alex. Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Great. Listen, uh, it's really nice to have you back on the podcast. Listeners might not know this, but we keep in contact on a fairly regular basis, but this is the second time you're, you're coming on. And I wish we had slightly more pleasant things to talk about, but I, I thought it was important for listeners to know what's been going on with you uh, for about a year and a month or so, which you haven't really talked about publicly so much. So, yeah, that's the yeah, purpose well, of your second appearance on here. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me on again. I spoke about this with Dr. Alan Keyes on his show a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to be talking about it more because I think what's happening, not just to me, but mainly, you know, especially to the people who are still sitting in jail in D.C. is terrible. And we really have no shot of getting a fair trial the way things are going right now. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about it. This is exactly the, the purpose of this call is to let people know what you've gone through for the past year or so. You were at the Capitol on January 6th in Washington, D.C., and since then you have been arrested and charged with essentially misdemeanor or minor offenses. We can go over them. And I wanted you to share your experience and to walk us through everything that happened to you from the moment you were in D.C. on January 6th at that fake insurrection and what it's been like for you and where is your case at right now? Yeah, so I was, uh, I kind of stayed out of politics and all of that until 2020 when, you know, I saw what was going on, but at the same time I was running a sales office and I think one of the main issues going on in America and in the world is people are so scared that if they speak out about what's really going on, that they're going to lose their income or, or lose their, you know, comfy positions. Well, when the lockdowns came to America and even to Ohio, which is supposed to be a red state, but we have a governor in Mike DeWine who's a rhino. Uh, I mean, it, it's pretty simple for anyone who has. A basic understanding of America that we had a First Amendment right to assemble. It says nothing in the Constitution about needing a mask to assemble or needing, you know, maximums eight people in a, in a household or in a room. Uh, so that was a big red flag, and the lockdowns really did hurt my business. And then I ended up having to pivot to a different business and leaving the company I was at for, I think, three and a half years. So but then what ended up happening was, you know, I, I kind of got involved, started speaking out a little bit, and we saw what was going on with the election. Even leading up to the election, President Trump was saying, guys, they're changing the election laws. They're going to be sending out tens of millions of unsolicited mail-in ballots. We don't know what's going to happen, and we don't know where they're going, but they do know where they're going, and, and they're going to try and steal it. So, you know, we heard all that, but we really didn't see it. And it was kind of hard to believe until election night. I went and I voted for President Trump, same day voting, went to the polls and did that. And then we all saw on election night how they stopped counting votes, all that stuff. We talked a lot about the election fraud in the first episode, so we don't have to get too much into that. But um, I saw a lot of evidence of it to the point where I was very convicted in my belief and still am that the election was stolen 
not just from President Trump, but from the American people. So I went down to Washington, D.C. on January 6th. I drove down the night before. I went down there by myself. I've got plenty of friends in Ohio, Republican and Democrat. None of them wanted to make the trip with me. <laughs> so I went down by myself. And I was there to see President Trump speak and to you know protest the election. And that's what I did. I got there at about 6 or 7 a.m. And uh, it, it was freezing cold, but there was already about a three-mile line of people wrapped around the Washington Monument, wrapped all around D.C., just to get in to see President Trump speak. So I went around, I, I met people, talked with people, and eventually some people that I met managed to get me a, a good spot in line, and I managed to get about fifth or sixth row to see President Trump speak that day. I stayed there and I, I watched his whole speech, which we now know that the Capitol was breached well before his speech was over. But I was there for the whole speech. I then ended up walking towards the Capitol. While we were outside, things kind of got, things were chaotic in the sense that ever like all the protesters I saw were totally peaceful, yet we were getting either tear gassed or I heard Julie Kelly on your episode say that maybe it was like a pepper spray bomb, but we were getting hit with some sort of gas. And next thing you know, I kind of got sucked into this big crowd of people that, that ended up going into the, the building that day. And I was in the Capitol building as the FBI and the DOJ know, you know, through their uh, arrests and everything. I was in the Capitol building and we, you know, we keep moving to like further parts in the Capitol building. Eventually, we're outside of the, uh, I believe it was the House chamber, and we're standing out there, and everyone around me is saying, stay peaceful, stay peaceful. And there were police officers standing in front of the Capitol doors to the Congress chamber, to the House chamber. We saw members of the House leave, and uh, who knows how much later it was, but a few minutes later was right when Ashley Babbitt was climbing through the window and got shot and killed, and in my opinion, murdered by Michael Byrd. It's on video there that I, I was right there, unfortunately, when that happened, about 10, 15 feet away. So after that, you know, there was a big, loud shot. Nobody expected it because we were all peaceful. And then everyone's like, what, what's going on? And they're saying, clear the way, clear the way. We're going to bring medics in and we're going to bring medics in to help this girl and save her. And we clear the way and we're making room for people. But instead of a medic, a ton of guys with riot shields came in dressed in all black and pushed everyone out of the building. And then, you know, we saw Aaron Babbitt, Ashley's husband, go on Newsmax later and say that he saw footage of their quote unquote medical treatment. And, you know, they were both former military. And he said, everyone knows when you get shot, you elevate the wound to make sure you don't bleed out. He said it looked like when they were dealing with Ashley, he said it looked like they were draining a deer. So that's what happened that day. Uh, the FBI later ended up questioning me. I said that I'm not answering any questions without a lawyer, but I did say this was just a couple weeks after, so we didn't really realize or recognize the FBI's involvement. But I told them, listen, it looked like Antifa was very strongly involved because we knew about John Sullivan already, who uh, obviously was the undercover Antifa guy who was in the building before 
anyone else was in the building, it looked like, with a CNN reporter and Jade Secker, which we can get into later. But he was in the building earlier, and he was the one who, who filmed the shooting, who was apparently right next to me. And there's a lot of questions about John Sullivan, actually, because he also was hanging out with Ray Epps the night before uh, when Ray Epps was telling everyone to go into the Capitol building, Ray Epps being the uh, alleged informant that Revolver has, has done such a great job of reporting. Uh, Julie Kelly's done such a great job of reporting, too. But, yeah, that's what happened that day with me. And then I ended up getting a, a flight to Colorado and when I was going to Colorado to do some business, I was uh, arrested at the airport. And they, uh, they arrested me. They handcuffed me. They raided my parents' house with guns drawn and everything. And uh, I spent the day in jail that day. And I am one of the very lucky ones who, you know, has not been trapped as a political prisoner I think of myself more as a hostage in this case. But yeah, I only spent a day in jail, but now I'm facing five misdemeanors, which are knowingly entering or remaining in restricted grounds, disorderly conduct, which impedes government business, violent entry slash disorderly conduct, parading, demonstrating, or picketing in the Capitol buildings, and then the felony charge, uh, which is the obstruction of justice slash obstruction of an official proceeding. Yes, I have your case sheet from the justice.gov website. And so it says you were arrested on the 23rd of February 2021 and then indicted in March of that same year. And thankfully, you know, you're not one of these cases that are being held under pre-trial detention, yeah. uh, as you just mentioned. And just generally, there's so much around 1-6 to unpack, as we discussed on the last call with Julie. Uh, with Darren, we focused essentially on the FBI involvement. With you, what I really wanted to discuss is how you were treated. And you mentioned that you were arrested at the airport. Then the FBI went to your parents' house with guns drawn at them. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how they basically just went through your phone, your your life, in essence. Can you speak about that? Yeah. So when they arrested me, they searched through my luggage, which we're still not sure that they had a warrant for my luggage, but they, they searched through it. They confiscated my laptop, my phone, which were the two things, obviously, when you're doing sales. And I, I left my, my company I was doing sales with. It was doing an online business. Well, when they took my phone and my laptop, they kind of took my business from me until I go and get a new phone and laptop. Um, but they took my phone, my laptop, my journals. I would keep journals, and they took all my journals, uh, which usually I, I use for, like, good ideas or whatever. But they're going to take the one page where I say that the Satanists stole the election from Trump, and they're going to say that that was, you know, an illegal thought or whatever – but when they raided my parents' house, it was in the middle of the workday. They were both working from home, and they got questioned separately for two hours apiece. When I was arrested, they said, well, we're about to go raid your parents' house. Do you want to call them and let them know that uh, you're under arrest and that we're going to go search it? And I said, yeah, I want to call them. And they said, okay, well, unlock your phone for me. 
And I said, well, can't I just use one of your guys' phones? And they said, well, we, we already have a warrant for your phone. You may as well just unlock it for us. And I said, I, you know, if, if it's within my rights, I'd rather not do that. So I didn't. My parents got no warning when they were raided. And, yes, so that's pretty much the situation. Now they're going through uh, – I, I, I guess I was allegedly reported to the FBI by somebody who I went to school with few years back still haven't been given the name of that person but i've got a pretty good idea but yeah that, that's pretty much what happened in terms of my treatment i mean the fbi agents were nice people in some cases but you know I, i'm not sure that it justifies the overall taking of unconstitutional orders going out and arresting peaceful protesters like that and hunting them down what you're describing fits perfectly with what the U.S. Attorney General of um, the District of Columbia, Michael Sherwin, had said on CBS in March 2021, you remember when he was interviewed, and he explained how his shock and awe campaign was meant to just go in, do this huge sweep of protesters who had been that day in order to punish these Americans who had dared protest the 2020 election with a specific goal of deterring future protests, especially ahead of the inauguration. So he stated that he had his, this goal of arresting 100 people before the inauguration. You were arrested just shortly after that, but it was right. clearly part of this whole shock and awe campaign that the DOJ waged against you. Well, and yeah, just to add on to that, I, I was arrested, what was it, a day or two before the you know fake inauguration, and... Yeah, when they went to, or no, I, excuse me, I was questioned uh, right before the inauguration, a day beforehand. And they said, well, you're not planning on going back to D.C., right? And I said, you know, no, not tomorrow. But um, yeah, then the other point about that is when the FBI went to question me that day, and I told them I didn't want to answer any questions, they said, well, how about we just read the questions to you that we're going to ask so you know that, you know, there's nothing incriminating here. And, of course, it was about seven questions, and they were incriminating. Now, I know they're apparently allowed to lie about that, but they were incriminating questions. And what was fascinating to me is not a single question that they wanted to ask me was about the woman who was shot 10 feet from me. And now we know that their, quote-unquote, internal investigation of Michael Byrd, they didn't even interview the guy. So it's a huge cover-up, in my opinion. And I, I think that they're hitting me with all these charges and this felony largely because I reported on the election fraud, but largely because they want me to also be quiet about the woman that they killed that day. How do you feel about everything you're going through, the charges that you're facing, the consequences of simply making use of your constitutional right, your First Amendment? Meanwhile, this police officer, Michael Byrd, who shoots and murders Ashley Babbitt, effectively, you're right to call it a murder, basically doesn't even get a slap on the wrist. Yeah, I mean, when trying to explain this to my Democrat friends and peers, it's, you know, imagine George Floyd, for example. Now, I understand it's a different case, and, you know, a lot of us think he, he may have died of, you know, something other than the police, but... Imagine somebody who's standing right there while George Floyd dies, instead of being questioned about it, being arrested and, and pretty much held as a hostage through the judicial system. So, 
yeah, I think the process is all messed up. You look at the way Republicans have handled January 6th, like Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell. They immediately came out and denounced Trump and all this stuff. Oh, he was promoting crazy election lies. He, he wanted to storm the Capitol and all this craziness when in actuality – What it's doing is it's really obstructing the judicial process, especially with the January 6th committee, because Congress is the legislative branch and the legislative branch is there to make our laws. And then the executive branch should be enforcing them. And then, you know, we go through the judicial system if we're accused of a crime and then we're innocent until proven guilty. Right. We have a right to a speedy trial as well. What they're doing with the January 6th committee is they they're getting all the evidence, but we, the defendants, are not getting the evidence. For example, Adam Kinzinger, you know, initially when Ted Cruz called it a terrorist attack on the Capitol, which then he walked back because, you know, he was getting a lot of heat for it. And then he questioned the FBI and he said, who is Ray Epps? Did the FBI encourage violent crimes that day? Which which they pled the fifth on that stuff and pleading the fifth. That's something I'm supposed to do as a criminal defendant. That's not something that a government agency should be doing when they're accusing hundreds of people of of an insurrection. And the treatment by the committee has been one thing, and and it's been terrible because Adam Kinzinger then said that, oh, we talked to Ray Epps, and we can assure you he's not an FBI informant. And then the January 6th committee said, actually, we're going to schedule a conversation with Ray Epps. So – They allegedly now have had two conversations with Ray Epps, and I've been screaming from the rooftops for about a month and a half. We need a transcript of that interview. I don't understand how anybody can be going to trial until we have the evidence, until we have the transcript. And that's why people are, you know, essentially being blackmailed into these plea deals because they're hiding the evidence in a way that no police department across the country, except for the Capitol Police, in conjunction with the DOJ, would be able to get away with because they're prosecuting these as federal crimes and discovery for the federal process is much more limited because they don't have to, you know, or at least they claim they, they don't have to give us anything and the legislative branch is exempt from Freedom of Information Act requests as well. So, so yeah, I think that the committee itself has really tainted any judicial process that that we can have because there is no you know we have a judicial system in america yet we have essentially a witch trial going on that's parallel to the actual trials that should eventually be going on now this is something we talked about with julie on the last call but in essence you don't even have access to your evidence you mentioned the ray epps transcript of his testimony but also you have these fourteen thousand hours of video footage that you can't see and then on top of it the other thing that we talked about is that they are slow walking all these trial dates and so my question is do you have a trial date set up no we uh what we've been doing pretty much the entire time is we've been having to push it back because because they won't give you the evidence so you right, have to they push it back given us they haven't been giving us the evidence now what they're saying is oh we we need time to search through uh his keyword searches leading up to the to january 6th they're not going to find me google searching how to storm the capitol <laughs> so i don't i don't know it's it's a big delay process and i mean there's so many problems with it too Initially, when they 
did the second impeachment on President Trump and they used January 6th for that, they doctored evidence. They changed tweets. They hid things. And, and then later on, when they, they blamed have... they blamed the protesters for the death of Officer Brian Sicknick, when we know yeah. now that that's a complete lie. Yeah, New York Times reported that protesters beat him to death with a fire extinguisher and that six people were killed in an armed insurrection when none of us were armed. Everyone around me was saying stay peaceful. And that was right where Ashley got shot. So they can say whatever they want in the media about it being justified, but I was right there, and nobody ever asked me. No, this is uh, the thing, and with uh, with both Julie and Darren's reporting, they've completely unraveled all these lies concocted to make it look like, quote, an insurrection, when in fact it, it was nothing of the sort. And I was watching, you know, live from Switzerland when the events were unfolding, and you could tell straight away that something was completely off with the narrative that was emerging very, very early on, that it was a pure fabrication that you had these violent protesters, Trump supporters, that were wrecking havoc and endangering others. We were seeing the images live of these people dressed all in black, pushing through, breaking windows with Trump supporters, pulling them away, saying that, no, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be violent. But anyway, all of this is out in the open now. But the point that I wanted to come back to is that one of the charges is, you know, the fact that you were on restricted grounds. And I brought this up on the call with Julia as well. Like, nobody knew that they had restricted the the capital. They lifted up the barriers. They opened the doors. What was it like when you were there? I mean, the doors were open. It didn't seem like you were doing anything wrong, right? Well, yeah, I mean, that, uh, like... A lot of it is a blur, you know. It was it was a long day. It was a it was a beautiful day actually. Before that, it was cold. It was frigid, but there were millions probably of people in D.C. that day who, who were there to make our voices heard about the election. And you know, people of all races from everywhere. You know, there were actually tons of old Chinese women walking around with signs and and handing out things saying, you know, end the CCP, abolish the CCP. Because they saw that Joe Biden was was a CCP puppet, which turned out to be right. But you know, the the other thing is, I just recently, and I don't know if I told you this, nor about a week ago, the one six committee subpoenaed my phone records from T-Mobile, and they want location information and other things, and they say, oh, we won't read the contents of it. But we already know that they read the contents and leaked the contents of Mark Meadows' text messages, I think Donald Trump Jr.'s text messages. And, I mean, there's so many things wrong with this committee. The Capitol Police officers who went under oath, Harry Dunn, Michael Fanone, and the other guys, they went under oath, and they totally lied under oath. Harry Dunn, black police officer, who said that about 25 Trump supporters were yelling the N-word at him. Now, if something like that really happened that day, we would have footage of it. And we don't have any body cam footage of any of these police officers. And it's, I mean, it's terrible. No, it really is. And, you know, speaking with you about this and knowing about all these political prisoners that are sitting in jail under these egregious conditions without access to evidence and without, you know, a trial date and pre-detention, etc. everything that I discussed with Julie just recently, I can't imagine what it must be like for you as an American to just, to experience the whole might of the federal government, to experience the might of 
the judicial branch, which is supposed to be impartial, and to see that in your country, which is supposed to uphold all these principles that we hold so, so dear, the presumption of innocence, the right to a speedy trial, as you said, the blind application of the law, and uh, you're being subjected to effectively a regime that has trashed all of this. And I would like to say that I commend you for pleading not guilty on all counts and uh, for seeing this through and going all the way and not yielding to this blackmail also that they're engaging in with these defendants to get them to do plea deals and to change their political affiliation. Well, I appreciate it, Noor. And, and, you know, honestly, I haven't 100% taken plea deals off the table. I've about 99% taken it off the table, especially because the first two plea deals they offered me were to the felony, which is what Jacob Chansley pled to, the QAnon shaman. And we know that, I mean, he was forced into it. His lawyer was working against him and he was being tortured. So I am in a, a very fortunate situation where I've been essentially free. You know, apparently, you know, I'm not allowed to leave the country, but the other thing is apparently I'm not allowed back in D.C. So I went to our friend Joe Kent's event about, you know, a few days ago, whatever, and it was about 10 minutes outside of D.C., and I made sure not to go into the nation's capital because apparently I'm banned from the entire capital of our country for walking into the building that day. That's crazy. I can't help but think of these these uh, defendants that are sitting in the essentially the DC the the DC gulag. But you know, thank you, considering you're free and you're in these conditions that you're doing the the right thing is commendable. So that's well, and, uh, and, and Nor, I really want to go to trial, but we need the. I mean, before we can make a decision, we need the evidence. Yeah. And we, and we when we have a legislative body like the January Sixth Committee getting all the evidence, but we as the defendants can't get the evidence, it's totally rigged. No, it's completely rigged. And Julie was saying, you know, also the judges in the area in D.C. and the juries, the people that they're going to get, you know, it's all it's all biased. This is clearly not the definition of a fair trial or a fair application of the law. But listen, we're, we're really rooting for you and for all the other defendants And we really pray that justice will be made because this is the foundation of your country we're talking about here. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, we've said it before on this podcast a million times, but it was really there to distract from the election fraud that went on and to install a regime that, you know, how long did they keep fences around the Capitol for? For a whole year? So it, it was really designed to distract from the election. That's why I was there in the first place. It was because I saw with my own two eyes lots of evidence of fraud. I watched the hearings with Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis. And, and as you know, later on, I ended up paying attention to all the audits, which completely vindicated what we were saying about the election. And the other point I want to make is that how is it obstruction of official proceeding when you walk in to a building when they're certifying the fraudulent vote, but it's not when you throw people out who are observing the the ballots and and when you know you're throwing out republican vote observers when you're pulling out suitcases full of ballots in the middle of the night like ruby freeman did i feel like that is what real obstruction of justice is things like what hillary clinton did deleting 32,000 emails and what's come to light with the durham probe recently has really shown how 
corrupt uh, at least the, the top, but really from the top down, these federal agencies like the FBI are. The other thing I forgot to mention, Nor, is that I was banned from Twitter and banned from Instagram after January 6th. Uh, so, you know, I never got back on Twitter or excuse me, never got back on Instagram, but then, you know, I, I got back on Twitter and I think the only reason they haven't banned me again is because I think that we're onto them in the sense that it's not these big tech companies that are banning people. It's the intelligence agencies. And I mean, Jen Psaki even said that there were voices that they were telling people to censor. So I'm search banned. The replies, my tweets are banned. And if you Google me, it's about how I committed an insurrection. So it's really nefarious what's going on and, and how they're trying to deplatform us and take away our voice as well. Listen, uh, the silver lining out of all of this, you know, the election fraud, how they're weaponizing 1-6 is that it's just so blatant. And you said it with the audits and the voting fraud and how they just stole the 2020 election. All the proof and the evidence is out there. We know what happened. We know what they're doing right now is completely illegal and un unconstitutional. And there's a reason we keep referring to the FedGov as a regime because this is exactly what they are. And everything they've been doing is to crush any form of dissent or try to silence anyone that dares question their legitimacy in the first place. But more and more people are awake and aware. And in the end, we will win. I always, you know, come back to that statement. It's not hopium. I really do believe that in the end, justice will prevail. At what cost? That's another question. At what cost, you know, for someone like you, for the people that are sitting in jail right now. But in the end, I have full faith that America will come back and all these institutions and branches of government just need to be completely cleaned out of these anti-American tyranny-enforcing minions. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that, you know, 2022, uh, one of the reasons I've been so focused on election fraud is, well, first of all, I think if they steal one presidential election, they can keep stealing them. I think you look at places like Venezuela, where they've had rigged elections forever. We're going to become that, you know, if we don't fix it. And the elections don't belong to the federal government. They belong to the people. They belong to the state senators who run the elections, who certify them. When they find out that they certified fraud, I think they have the constitutional authority to decertify that fraud. So in 2022, I think it's so important that we elect Republicans. We, we have to fight off a lot of the fraud, but I think we need to elect Republicans not like Lindsey Graham, who it came out that on January 6th, he told Capitol Police officers to shoot the protesters, and then they did, which is inciting violence. We can't let Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, all these rhinos who give us all the talking points, we can't let them fool us again. And the way we, we make sure we don't elect rhinos is we elect people who are going to look at the 2020 election and have the guts to, to buy it if it's fraudulent. And then the other thing is, who's telling the truth about what's happening with Durham, with January 6th? Because these are the issues that really weed out the rhinos from the true patriots, in my opinion. 100%. I completely agree with you. And we had agreed also on, on this fact on the last call we had together, but there is no future election. There's no 2024 unless 2020 gets rectified. And I don't know how, I don't know what constitutional avenue is going to be taken, how they're going to go about decertifying what happened in 2020, but there needs to be a restoration. But 
listen, Alex, I'd love to have you back on to focus especially on the fraud again. We had said we'd do that last time uh, on the 2020 election fraud and what this means ahead of the midterm. So we'll have to have that conversation uh, as well very soon if you'll come back on. Absolutely. I would love to. Will you keep us posted as well on uh, your case and what happens next for you uh, with regards to 1-6? Absolutely, I will. And hey, if anyone is listening who is a lawyer who can uh, help me out with the 1-6 committee as well, I have a criminal lawyer, but not one helped me out with the 1-6 committee. I recently met with Matt Brainard, so hopefully he's got some connects. But anyone listening, I appreciate any help. I don't need any money or anything. I just, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the people in the D.C. jail we should raise money for, and we've got to get them out as soon as possible. 100%. Alex, thank you so much, and we'll speak very soon. Great. Thank you so much, Nora. Godspeed. Bye. All right. Bye.